So welcome back to another Impact Sessions podcast with me, Nick Bramley. This is a season finale while we take a short break, but what a way to go out. I'm interviewing Miriam Durvin, who's the executive chair of MD Group, and I've entitled this podcast episode, The Almost Accidental Entrepreneur. So without further ado, I'm just going to say hello, Miriam, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nick. Lovely to be here. Thank Lo you for inviting me. Lovely to see you. Um, I've got some notes here, and I, and I don't need to read them out to say that I'm delighted to have you as a guest, and I've known you for a number of years um, as a client, and I'd class you as a as a friend, and you are just one of the most positive and inspiring people I come across, um, and we're going to explore a bit of that positivity and, and inspiration. Um, but we're going to take a journey from your career, which started off on a temporary job basis in Dublin, to running a multinational, multi-million pound company employing 160 staff in five or six global locations. It's quite a story. Um, so let's get exploring, shall we, Miriam? Sure, let's, let's hit it, Nick. And as everyone can probably tell now with the accent, I'm Irish. So this should be good, Nick, because when Irish eyes are smiling, they're usually up to something. So let's see what <laughs> we get up to today. Excellent. I love that. And I love the fact that I'm going to have to stop you in your track several times because we've already got about 40 minutes and boy, you can talk and so can I. So this should be fun. <laughs> so, okay, let's, before we get into the journey, um, you're obviously uh, executive chair of MD Group. Um, it's worth starting off with, you know, what is MD Group about? What is it and what does it do? Um, you know, products, services, sectors, that kind of thing. What's it all about? Okay, well, when I met you, Nick, you know, we, we've known each other for a long time, a good number of years. MD Group used to be known as MD Events. And I, I know we'll probably go back to that in, in, in further questions later on in the, in, the, in the podcast. But now we're MD Group. And what we actually do now is we manage patients in clinical trials. So what I mean by that is anything that touches the patient as in getting medications to their home, we do mobile nursing, we can get the patient to the clinic, to the, to the uh, investigator site, to the hospital, we can get car services, we can do all sorts of things to look after the patient. And that's what we do fundamentally. Now we have different services. So for example, we have um, a medical distribution center. We call them the Horeas, which is Latin for warehouse. Uh, we, we carry and hold the medical devices like centrifuges, PPE, all that kind of thing. So when the nurses need to bring those out to the patients, we will either send them to the nurses or send them to the patients. So we've got medical distribution centers as well. We also have another company called Seacole uh, Health. And Seacole comes from the name of the first black nurse who was around the time of Florence Nightingale. And she was a huge influence in, in the nursing, um, in all that nursing, um, uh, you know, around the time of the Crimean War and, and, and uh, when soldiers needed it and that kind of thing. And mm. she was a huge influence back in those times. So because of that, we named our nursing agency Seacole Health. Um, so we, we do mobile nursing, yeah, the medical distribution centers, it's concierge management, we look after rare disease, 
patients, for example, who can't maybe, you know, get themselves to the, to the hospital, we will do everything around that patient to make sure they get their medication, that they get their bloods checked, everything done. So whatever it has to do with managing patients, that's fundamentally what we do. I mean, when we first spoke, I was unaware of, you know, obviously clinical trials are vitally important to pharmaceutical companies and people who are developing sort of uh, drugs, etc. cetera. Uh, and, and you were saying that, you know, the cost of someone dropping out of a clinical trial is massive because, you know, they've invested time, effort and energy and then they might drop out because they can't get there or they've lost that kind of you know, the, the, the ability, capacity to, to be as mobile as they used to be. So it's a really, really powerful and valuable service and quite niche, isn't it? Although big, you know, it's niche as in the fact that it looks after, you know, pharmaceutical clinical trials, et cetera. But, you know, it, it's a big global market, isn't it? Absolutely. Oh, it's, it's without a huge global market. And, you know, you're, you're 100% right, Nick. You know, we're seen as a patient retention company. A lot of patients leave clinical studies because, you know, they can't get to the clinic, they can't get to the site, they get fed up, they forget to take their medications and they have to start all over again. Like there's lots of different reasons. And that can cause huge amount of I'll say upset in a clinical trial yeah. and it costs the pharmaceutical companies um, a lot of money, you know, to, to, to look for patients and more patients again to, to get into the trials. And from there, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge business in terms of uh, trying to keep patients in for, for the trial so that they can get their drug to market easily and quicker. You know, so, yeah, we're seen as a patient retention organization. I'm not going to go into specific details, but you've got a, a product called Patient Primary, which when I was involved with the business early on, and it, it was in its infancy. It was just so clever and so simple and effective. It was one of those things that blew my mind as an external person looking at the business and going, wow, that's the whole wraparound, isn't it? And we'll go into, we won't go into that in detail, but it's the whole wraparound service of making sure the patient's at the heart of the clinical trial experience. So that it's fantastic to see, but that's where you are now. I, I've called this episode the accidental or almost accidental entrepreneur. And, 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 and I know you'd have been a massive success, whatever you turned your hand to, but let's start with the start of your career. We had a conversation off air as part of the research for this. And your first job was a two-week temp job at the Institute of Pharmacology in Dublin. And you said to me, you didn't even know what pharmacology was when they offered you the job. So um, tell me about that and, and the persistence of the recruiter that got you into this sector. How did that come about, two weeks temp job into where we are now? I know it's really funny, actually, Nick. You know, when I look back and I think, oh, my goodness, what if I hadn't taken that job? But what happened at the time was I was only 19, you know, going on 20. And I had worked for a company called the Araspan Board Center, where they sold chipboard and, and that kind of thing to builders, providers. And I was only there for 18 months. It was my first real job. And that went into receivership. So between that job, um, you know, and taking my next job, I went off around the world thinking, my God, you know, this is great. Now I'll head off around the world for a month, bought my, my ticket, off I went. And when I came back, there was me thinking, ah, oh, sure, to be no problem getting a job, you know. <laughs> so I went into a recruitment agency in Dublin called Firsta. 
and gave in my CV and we had our chat and everything. And the following day, anyway, this lady kept ringing me. And from about 10 o'clock in the morning, the phone was ringing. And I was like, Miriam, we've got two days here. And I'd be like, no, I don't think so. And she said, well, look, we've got a week in this other place, you know, and she'd ring me back again, maybe a couple of hours later. What do you think? And I'm like, no, no. So eventually, anyway, four o'clock in the afternoon came and she said to me, right, she says, Miriam, I am not ringing you again. This is the last job I am going to offer you. And it's a two week data entry position at the Institute of Clinical Pharmacology. And I thought, right, OK, well, at least it's two weeks, so I better take it. <laughs> so I took the job and two weeks turned into three months temping with them. I absolutely loved it. I loved it. But that turned into three months. And that then turned into um, a, a full time job with them for the following year and a half. But I often wonder, Nick, if I had taken any of the other jobs, where would life have taken me? You know, so it's really funny. I ended up in, uh, in the pharmaceutical space. Well, you, it's fair to say, are always immaculately dressed. I can't see you selling chipboard in a hard hat, Miriam. I just can't see that that builder's merchants would have been for you. So um, that was a lucky move. So that's the way the accidental bit comes in. Um, in terms of the seeds of entrepreneurship or developing your thinking around doing something yourself, what sparked that? What did you see in there or what did you see as part of your career to think, you know, I could probably do something here. How did you end up kind of having that spark, really? Well, I, it was never in, in me, Nick, to kind of feel that I would be ever capable of being an entrepreneur or having my own business. I'm, I never thought about any of that all in my 20s. You know, from, from the Institute of Clinical Pharmacology, I worked, went on to work at Wyeth Laboratories for four years. I did a, a stint as well at the uh, Irish Pharmaceutical Institute. You know, so I stayed in the industry very much and I suppose I worked my way up. And I got an opportunity with the company. Well, when I say it's called Covents, it's funny that ICP, when it went into receivership, the R&D part, the research and development part of ICP was taken over by another CRO called Corning Besselar. And over time, Corning Besselar became Covents. And I ended up going back working at Covents. Um, so there was great history there going back to my first, you know, my first uh, two week temporary job at data entry. So it was Covents that gave me an opportunity to start an investigator meeting service, you know, organizing meetings, um, you know, key opinion leader meetings, advisory boards, that kind of thing. And I did that for three years. Mm -hmm. And I remember a guy called Brian Swindley coming into my office and he said, you know, he said, Miriam, he said, why don't you do this yourself? He said, you could easily do this yourself. So I'm now in my early 30s and I'm thinking, God, no, there's no way. But he actually sowed the little seed. Mm. Uh, and, you know, because the, the, the department, the investigation meeting department in Covance flourished and we opened up a, a, a department in, in the States and we were organizing meetings all over the world. And it mm. became quite a, uh, you know, a, a flourished department and service in Covance. So that's really where it all started. But it's a very regulated sector, isn't it? You know, the, the investigative meetings and, and those kind of things, you have to do things properly regulated, you know, by the book, et cetera. So someone taking ownership of that and then putting that service internally into Covance was was clearly something that was working well. So um, your Brian guy probably then spotted the opportunity to say, well, Covance is just one 
of the organizations who need these investigative meetings why don't you do it so so what was the catalyst when did you when did you sort of take the jump and think right I'm going to do this yeah like after Brian said it to me for the following couple of months I had been really seriously thinking about it and even though in my heart I knew I could do it and I started to want to do it um, there definitely was a niche in the marketplace, Nick. You know, I, you know, working with Covance, I was only able to work on their studies and their projects, mm. whereas the whole clinical research world out there. And I had seen a lot of people come and go, you know, through through Covance and, and, and gone to work for other parts of, of the pharma industry. So I knew that I could contact them. Mm. But that little seed kind of drove me to think, yeah, you know what? I could do this. And about three months later, I went into my boss's uh, office with my resignation letter and gave it to him. And of course, he was devastated because we, we worked really well together and everything. But I said, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take this chance. And that's what I did. Excellent. I mean, that's often the spark. Someone else gives you an idea and, and, and it sort of germinates and, and you can't lose it. You can't forget it, can you? And and. I love the fact that you backed yourself at the time and, you know, you, you, you are accidental as an entrepreneur because I don't think it's something that you set out to do. When you were at school and when I was at school, it wasn't something that was even discussed, was it? You know, go and get a job and, and, and you know, have a career and enjoy doing that. But, you know, being a setting up your own business. So you went from an office environment from Covance, I'm assuming with everything sorted out, you know, centralized IT and all the stuff that you need to be effective in a business and HR and all that kind of stuff. Then I guess it was just you, a phone, a kitchen table. And did you have a PC at the time? I'm assuming I can't remember. What year was this, Miriam, that you started this? I started in January 2002. So you will have had, you will have had the PC and the, and the stuff. So you, so you sat at home with a kitchen table and a phone and a network of people and a PC. So how were the first few months of life as a business owner and what doubts, if any, did you have, you know, at the stage that you're thinking, what the hell have I done? Did that ever come into, into play? Now, would you believe, Nick, it actually didn't because I was so excited about it. Um, I never thought of the what ifs, never occurred to me, what if this didn't work out? What if the client doesn't pay me and I have no money? What if, what if? That never entered my head. At this stage, I had so much determination that I was going to do it and I was going to make it work. But, you know, my bills also had to be paid. Yeah. So I freelanced for the first year that I was also drumming up business for MD events. Uh, I was freelancing. So I worked for med, med ed agencies. I worked for other, um, you know, events agencies and that kind of thing. So I was able to pay my way, you know. Um, but that determination was there all the way through. And, and I built up my business from that perspective. And as I was building it up, I was gaining more revenue. And from there, then I was able to expand. And I took my first employee on then the following year. But I was just so excited, Nick. I loved it. And that passion was uh, was definitely there and determination but that in itself is part of the dna of an entrepreneur isn't it you know the the what if what's the worst that could happen you'd have gone back to covance would have had you back with the, with their arms open somebody else would have taken you on 
you know, backing yourself to do that and, and setting up from home and losing all that infrastructure that you'd had around you is, uh, well, it just has to be done, doesn't it, really? And a year later, you took somebody on as your first employee. How did that feel, by the way? Because that's quite a moment for a, a small business as you were at the time. What, how did it feel taking someone on? I know it was great, but again, it was accidental um, because this lady, Stephanie, was uh, was also, she also worked with me when we were at Covan, so I knew her for a few years. Mm. And Stephanie happened to be made redundant on, uh, on that year, that my first year in the October. So as I, as I could see all of the business starting to drum up and more you know, clients were looking at us and whatnot, I, I knew I needed somebody back at the office. And Stephanie was made redundant. She came to me and said, look, Murr, if there's anything I can do to help you, absolutely. And I decided, you know what, we'll go for it. So I took Stephanie on as a full-time employee in the January. Again, never even occurred to me as to how am I going to pay her every, every month? <laughs> My salary that I give to her pays her mortgage, puts food on her table. How am I going to do that? Never even entered my head. Yeah. Very exciting. Now, at some stage, you'll have realized you were really onto something and there was a real potential to go beyond, you know, maybe a small business into something bigger. What was the, was there a trigger point for that? Was there a timing on that? Or was it just organic growth where, Every time you were talking to people, you'd found this gap in this niche and people were you know, desperate to work with you. How did it work for the evolution, uh, Miriam? Yes, it was it was purely organic. Um, I remember somebody asking me one day, like, you know, Miriam, what's your business plan? How how big do you want to grow? And in my mind, I was thinking, well, if I had a small team of about five or six people, that would be fantastic. And uh, that didn't happen because we grew and grew. And you're 100% right, Nick. I go back to what you said before that, you know, we were in a very niche area. Um, it's, it's highly regulated with compliance and, and, you know, GCP, which is good clinical practice and all of that. So, you know, everything is very highly regulated in, pharmaceut in, in pharmaceuticals. So it definitely was a niche. And that was my biggest USP along with my passion. Mm. <clears throat> so we grew because of that it was it was definitely all organic I never realized what would actually happen Nick that wasn't in the plan it was a complete surprise <laughs> but but you know niche is good because niche gives you that and I think the expertise bit alongside that because you'd only worked and embedded your entire career in that sector hadn't you so credibility was you know high in terms of people you know assessing whether they should work with you or not so how quickly did it grow then, you know, in terms of, because a lot of businesses struggle with recruiting and developing people and whatever. What's your attitude to that? And how quickly did you get into that kind of growth plan then? Yeah, I suppose like, you know, we took on our second employee who was Jackie Ventress and we took Jackie on then in the April. So, you know, we, we started to become a team and that was when I took my first office because we were sort of working out of Stephanie's office in Bracknell or my office, which was our homes, basically. Yeah. Taking on Jackie, we needed to have somewhere different. So it became more formal when we moved into a very small office that could only take like four people, you know. Mm. Um, but you know, we, we grew very quickly, Nick. And I think that was because, yeah, it was a niche industry. I had the passion and I knew people. Back then you could knock on the door and say hello to me. Oh, Mary, do you remember we worked at Covance together? Have you got anything for me? And Mary would give you something. That's not the way it is nowadays. It's all procured 
teams and vendor management and all this kind of stuff. But back yeah. then, that's the way it was. So, yeah, we, we, we grew very quickly because of, um, of where we were at and, and the fact that I knew people and I had my passion. So within two years, Nick, we were up to 20 people. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I place a lot of trust in people. I'm not a micromanager. Mm-hmm. I place trust in people. And the only way you're really going to know them is by giving them a chance. Mm-hmm. So we use the local um, uh, recruitment agency and they would send us d- different people. And if they didn't work out, they didn't work out. But a lot of them did, you know, mm. and you give people a chance and you can't micromanage, but you've got to motivate and inspire, you know. So I didn't spend too much time on that at the time, you know, because we just needed to grow the business. And, you know, Steph looked after them, basically. Excellent. OK, so you were always sort of out there, business development, relationship building, you know, looking at strategy, growing the business, et cetera, with a, with a developing team behind you that you trusted to get the job done. Um you now MD Group, obviously MD Events was was one starting element of that. And MD Group now does a whole range of services around that. Um, it sounds like it's been fairly straightforward, Miriam, but I guess with every story of business success, there's been some ups and downs. Has it been straightforward glory all the way? Or have there been some challenges along the way as well for you, Miriam? Well, I wish it was glory all the way, Nick. Wouldn't that be lovely? But uh, absolutely not. I mean, as well as facing clients who are unhappy and, you know, I mean, things happen and and that's just the way life is, you know, it's all about how you deal with them. Of course, you're going to have unhappy clients at times. So we had that for a little while, you know, at the beginning. But my dad got terminal colon cancer in 2008 and I moved back to Ireland to look after him. And my mother was already uh, quite ill. She had the symptoms of Parkinson's and she was in a nursing home. So, you know, I went home to Ireland for those three years um, to look after them. My parents then have both now passed away. So I came back to the UK the end of 2011, early 2012 to get rid of the CEO that I had in situ at the time. Um, and he took me for constructive dismissal because we weren't doing well. He mm. had no in the business. The motivation was really low. We had been losing business to our competitors and also our, some of our clients had taken their events in-house. So he wasn't doing anything to build it up. So I got rid of him and that brought me into a constructive dismissal court case with him. And also at the time, he got me embroiled in a trust issue, right? So I went into two court cases, two very serious court cases between 2012 and 2013, which wasn't easy coming back to an already kind of, shall I put it, flagging business, you know, um, Mm. that were demotivated. We had lost a lot of our good people. Sales weren't great. So you're faced with all of that. So no, things aren't all glorious, Nick. You know, it doesn't happen that way, unfortunately. No, it doesn't. And the reality is, if you hadn't have had to go home and look after your parents, and and you know, as, as sad as it was working remotely, it wasn't as easy then to do it and work remotely and keep an eye on things. Um, you know, that wouldn't have probably happened under your guidance, I guess. Um, but you then um, appointed a new CEO and became group chair about five five or so years ago. Um, how has that appointment gone and how is moving, I call it moving upstairs, really, you know, sort of moving away from the day to day dynamics. Um, how's that resulted in terms of the, the, the success of, of MD as a group then with that appointment and your elevation to executive chair? Well, I knew 
you know, in those years, 2012, 13, that I really needed, you know, help. I wanted support and I needed more creativity coming into the business. And I had also lost a little bit of my own spirit when my dad passed away because that was a big shock, you know. So mm -hmm. I wanted I wanted the support and help of a partner. OK, but so I was very, very lucky that Tarquin Skadenkont walked into my life in 2014 one or two cowboys had come and gone in between. But Tarquin walked into my life in 2014 and I haven't looked back. He is just utterly amazing. So I was the CEO for a couple of years um, and he was the COO. And I needed that time to build up my trust with Tarquin to see what he was like. Um, were we good together in terms of partnership, working together? Had he the same values as I? And he did, absolutely. Mm. And more. Um, so I then uh, appointed him as CEO in 2000, and I think it was 15 or 16, 15. And I didn't mind stepping back because, as I say, Nick, I had lost a little bit of my spirit after my dad died. I had had the passion, you know, that I had come and gone through that in the early days, and that wasn't me anymore. Um, I just needed somebody to help me move on because it was still my business. I still had survive it was my bread and butter it paid my um, my mortgage my rent my whatever my bills um, and it was still my baby at that stage now it has grown up drastically now it's now an adult out in the field but at that time um yeah I I, I needed I needed somebody like Tarquin and he has been utterly amazing well I think that goes down to again the entrepreneurial spirit to say look you know it is my business if I'm hands-on I'm probably going to restrict the potential growth of that with the with, obviously you had a lot going on with, you, with your mum and your dad and then the court cases you know that's going to break a lot of people it didn't break you it bent you a little bit didn't it but it didn't break you um but then you've got someone that you absolutely trust and you've built up that trust with so md group then under the tutelage and, and guidance of, of yourself as exec chair and, and tarquin as, as ceo is that now in a position where you're thinking you know we are absolutely where we should be and where you thought you might have got to maybe in 2008 and you're now there in 2020-21 oh my god Nick we never knew we'd be here I mean when Tarquin came in we were thinking okay so how do we sort of you know how are we going to shake this place up and whatever and it was Tarquin's idea actually he he rang me up one day and he said I've got it he said Miriam you know we've always looked after delegates but now we can let we can look after patients and I thought he was bonkers, you know, because these studies can run into thousands of patients. How can you look after each and every one, you know? But uh, we decided we'd look at the likes of rare disease, Duchenne studies, you know, studies where it, it's not just for the common code. It's for mm. people who genuinely need help. Um, and we started with patient primary, which you mentioned at the beginning, Nick, which is our patient concierge service. That's where we could get a car to pick up the patient and bring them to the clinic or, or all that kind of thing. Uh, now it has clearly developed and um, much to our own amazement. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's developed because the industry has helped us develop. You know, they have come to us to say, well, if you did this or if you did that, you know, if you distributed our, our, our devices, that would be really helpful. If you were able to distribute our, our medicines by having a pharmacy, um, we could do that too. So the industry itself has helped us develop up to where we are today but if you asked me to look back in 2008 to where I'd be in 2021 absolutely no way would I have ever imagined this is where we this is where we would have ended up 
but I love the agility and I love the creativity and the thinking and it, and the DNA in the business is your DNA. It's that can-do attitude. Don't think about, you know, what might not happen. Think about what could be achieved. And that's, you know, really, really inspirational. So I just want to explore a bit of the, the time you've got back to yourself. That is, you know, executive chair, I'm not saying day-to-day that you're not busy, but um, you've got a couple of passions. And I know one of them you want to inspire the next generation of women business owners and maybe younger female entrepreneurs. Um, you've also got an education foundation we're going to discuss shortly. Why do you think it's important to inspire women business owners and younger female entrepreneurs particularly? Why is that important? Well, I suppose it goes back, Nick, to, you know, women were oppressed for a long, long, long time. And we have an awful lot of energy and passion in us. And, you know, women in business bring balance. We look at, look at business and, and, and understand strategies through being objective and subjective. Okay, so we bring that balance, whereas men are more objective. You know, it's mm. like factual, this is it. So we do bring a lot of balance. We have a lot to give. But women were oppressed for so long, Nick. And for me to have independence is so important. That's your freedom. Mm. And women have a right to be free. And I love to see women have their own business and have their own independence. You know, when I look back with my mom, and my mom was, was, was brilliant. In fact, you know, she was sort of one of the first people who inspired me. She had her own business. She had a guest house. She ran a B&B when we were younger. Mm. And amazing customer service customer care all that kind of um, all those tools that that she passed on to me you know I suppose as Daniel Kaluuya said in his Oscar speech like his mom gave him his factory settings well my mother gave me mine and I know my mother could have done an awful lot more you mm. know but it was the day it was it was the 60s the 70s my dad was the authoritarian in the family. He was the one out there earning the bucks and therefore he called the shots. And I saw that growing up and I was like, no, that's never going to happen with me. Mm. So I have a great passion for women to have their freedom and their freedom comes with independence. And, they, and it's not just freedom from being under the authoritarian of a man or whatever. It's being free to be creative, mm. to be themselves. And I think that's incredibly important. It's freedom to make your own decisions and, and do what you want to do and follow the career paths that you want to follow. And I know we've discussed previously about sort of speaker engagements and business engagements and school and higher education talks. I guess the pandemic's put a bit of a, uh, um, uh, a downer on that for now. Is that something you're looking to get back into once the pandemic opens up a little bit to, you know, to, to go to conferences or do online and, and speak at schools and Edu higher education just as an inspirational kind of thought process well definitely next like i mean initially i was thinking of you know because we had talked about it me going out there and and being sort of like nearly like a motivational speaker but i don't think that's really the route i want to go down tarquin and i have decided that we would like to do speaker engagements in schools and i know we're going to talk about the foundation in in a, in a minute yeah but 
be next for us on the agenda. It's going to schools and encouraging students and even at universities, because, um, you, you know, I wrote my book and, you know, just get on with it like um, and basically it's aimed at students who are studying MBAs in business and that kind of thing it's very personal what the journey I've gone through but it gives them hints and tips on how to run a business and be in business and what to do you can't learn everything from a book you know mm. or, or a lecture you need to be involved in it so you know it's, it's going to be all around that you know, helping students, helping pupils in secondary schools and encouraging them and motivating them. And that's kind of what's next on the agenda. Excellent. Well, I just want to explore. We've established you started as a temp in Dublin and here you are as a very successful businesswoman with a multinational, you know, multi-location uh, international business. Um, and you've now set up MD Educational Foundation. So um, what's behind the foundation what's its purpose and what you what's your ambitions for it what, what, what are you looking to achieve with it? it's a great thing to do do you want to explain a bit more about the background and what the you know how, how people access the foundation yeah sure that would be great nick thank you um i guess where the foundation was born out of um a lot of it had to do with how i felt in school and I was a very anxious child and, and I don't need to go into the whole background, but again, it's all about the emotional sort of um, um, connection I had with my mother when my mother had postnatal depression and all of, all of that kind of thing. So I grew up as a very anxious child mm. and anxious children find it very difficult to learn. But I always thought I was stupid and thick. That was actually my mantra. When I was in secondary school and I was home in the evenings after school and I'd, you know, walk to the to the room to start doing my homework, I would actually walk up and down the sitting room saying to myself, you're stupid, you're thick, you're stupid, you're thick. So I actually began to believe that, right? Um, so that was always, that came with me even into my adulthood, I never felt good enough that like, I could ever achieve. I never went to university or college because I never got the grades, you know. Mm. And then Tarkman's story is that he, his family worked away from home. Like his father was posted out to Pakistan and different countries like that. And because Tarquin was the only son, he had three sisters. He, he was the only son and he was the eldest um, they wanted Tarquin to get um, a, a UK or an English education. So Tarquin was put into boarding school when he was only nine or 10 years of age. And that was very, very isolating on him. Like, I mean, he didn't have his family coming to see him at weekends or holidays or anything like that. It was only the big holidays, like summer holidays, Tarquin himself as a child would have to get on an airplane and go to them. So it was very isolating for him. And I'm sure that was incredibly painful all those years. And even though Tarquin is a big man, six foot four, like a rugby player, he, um, he was bullied in school. So those those things drove us to form the foundation he must have been on a growth spurt at some stage i've met tarquin no one's bullying tarquin he's built like an absolute brick outhouse isn't he and but he's, he's a gentle soul as well isn't he but he's he's six foot four he's got shoulders the size of a prop four he's, he's he's a he's a big guy he's a lovely guy as well so so you've both come from a different perspective on education and both had equally challenging but different experiences of that so so the foundation's based on your experiences so what are you trying to achieve with it what do you want to do with it Miriam 
Okay, so what we're, what we're doing with the foundation is we are bringing well-being professionals into secondary schools. And we will place well-being professionals, um, like at the minute we've actually got a psychologist um, who is in Stenning Grammar School. Um, and she is working through, you know, the needs and the wants and, and whatnot of, of, the, of the pupils there, because we know there'll be behavioral issues and mental health issues and emotional issues and all of that kind of stuff. So we want to place well-being uh, healthcare professionals in secondary schools to be a support to students who really need that support. And that will help them before they go out into the big bad world, you know, before mm. the adults. Because I know if I had had that support back in my day, it would have really, really helped me because I didn't understand what I was going through. I didn't know it was anxiety. I didn't understand the word anxiety or, or what my feelings were. And, it, and if I had somebody else to talk to other than my mother or my friends, I kept everything very much to myself. And I kept silent about so much of it because I didn't know what it was. But if somebody was there to support you on that, that would have been absolutely amazing in terms of my development and moving on to an adult. So a well-being professional, mental health care advisor, someone just independent from your circle would make, and that's what you're trying to achieve with the, the the foundation. It's a great thing to do, by the way, and I think never more needed than, you know, the pressures that have been put on people with lockdowns and, you know, those kind of things. And, and, and you know, there's been a lot of publicity about mental health awareness and mental health sort of first aid and those kind of things. So, um is the foundation up and running then, Miriam? I know it's, it's a fairly new-ish concept, isn't it? Is it up and running? It is. It's 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 relatively new-ish. Um, we're putting together a whole brand new website and, and all that kind of stuff. And even though we have placed a few wellbeing healthcare professionals in schools, uh, we haven't started the whole process properly just yet because we just want to see how that would work get some statistics you know what do we need to do to actually put a formal program together mm. uh, so that we can roll that out but it's going to be up and running soon we're looking at towards the end of this year we're also uh, hiring an administrator a full-time administrator for the for the foundation so we're looking to be up and running full-time towards the end of this year where schools school principals can actually apply for the grant uh, to put a well-being healthcare professional in their school and we pay their salaries for up to three years. That is fantastic. I would say, by the way, that given your starting point of view, a laptop and a phone as MD events, there's every chance that uh, the MD Educational Foundation will be significantly bigger by the end of 2022, 2023 as well. So get ready for a roller coaster of, of, of growth on that one. Last question for you, Miriam. What's next for the irrepressible and unstoppable Miss Durban? Well, the unstoppable, now, Nick, you're very funny there, the unstoppable. Like, life is moving on. And would you believe I was looking back on some very old photographs going back 20 years ago when we got started at MG Events because I'm getting ready to give another presentation and uh, they want to know my history and look at some photographs. Well, I was nearly in tears looking back at them 20 years ago. <laughs> but you know what? Like, it was brilliant. 
brilliant back then and I loved it and I still do love it now even though I'm I'm not as engaged from a daily perspective but I still love what we do but at the same time life moves on Nick and I really want to move back home to Ireland so I'm looking to to buy somewhere in Dublin buy a nice apartment in Dublin my friends and my family are still at home and I want to have easier access to them that I can just hop in the car and drive to them rather than having to organize an airplane and all of that kind of stuff so I'll definitely move back to Dublin that's one of the things I will definitely do haven't you got a season ticket for Brentford and hope they get into the Premier League I mean you're going to miss you're going to miss the traveling you live around the corner from the new stadium it's a bit of a commute if you're going to come and watch Brentford every week isn't it well I do have a new season ticket because we've got a new stadium Woohoo! the Brentford Bees now to be honest Nick I don't have any hope in them going up into the premiership they really really messed up last year they had three wonderful chances and it didn't happen but I'll still keep the season tickets because I'm going to keep my my apartment here in Brentford because I'll be over and back anyway you know how we used to travel Nick that's not going to go away so I'll that's still be that's a short hop for you, a commute across, isn't it? But the other thing I'd say to you, this is going out on May the 18th, by which time that statement might come back and bite you right in the backside, Miriam, but we'll leave it at that. So, Miriam, it just remains for me to say, you, as I fully expected, by the way, have been a, a fabulous guest. Those who uh, subscribe to the podcast will know that it's available on our YouTube channel. It's available on the Impactus Group website and also uh, links to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, you, uh, Podbean, etc. They're all available on that basis. I put Miriam's contact details on the holding slide for those who watch the video rather than consume this by audio. But all of Miriam's contact details uh, will be in this the, the notes for the episode on each of the platforms that you use. It just remains for me to say, Miriam, you've been an absolutely fabulous guest. Thank you so much and hopefully speak to you very, very soon. It's been an absolute pleasure, Nick. Thank you very much for inviting me. See you soon. Thank you. Bye.